0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0 and I am really pleased to welcome Lex Pelger back into the salon for another one of his very interesting podcasts. It's been a couple of months since we've heard Lex here in the salon, and in the interim, he's been, well, he's been quite busy, as you will hear in just a moment. So now we have two contributors to Salon 2 programs Lex and, as you heard a few weeks ago, the Lakey Sisters. So what I plan on doing for the next few months is to alternate each week between a Salon 1 and a Salon 2 podcast. As you know, uh, I've been playing a Terrence McKenna class in Salon 1 lately, and just yesterday I received a package of seven new tapes of his that I've never heard. So you have a bunch of new McKenna coming your way as well. By alternating between Salon 1 and Salon 2 podcasts each week, it frees up some of my time that I need for a few writing projects that I've been working on for a while. But never fear, I plan on continuing these podcasts for several more years now that I've got this help. So now let's get on with the program where Lex will bring you up to date on his life these past couple of months.
1: I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Hello, everybody. I'm back. And before I get to our rollicking chat with Julian Vane in the UK, I wanted to share a quick update to explain my absence. Because it's been pretty busy around here. Our baby, Sophia Estelle, arrived on January 7th, 2018, at 1.20 a.m. She's doing swell, and she has her grandfather's eyes and her mama's nose and her papa's suspicious frown. And in fact, on January 1st of this year, I asked her mama to marry me. So save the date of August 4th for the wedding party back in Pennsylvania. So there's the news on this end. For all of you that already have children, thanks for the well wishes. For those of you who don't have kids, I can say yes, it's exactly what you think. Only more so. But now things are starting to settle down after seven weeks, and I can get back to making episodes for you all. Now that I'm at Bluebird Botanicals, they gave me the library to use as a recording studio, so you won't hear any baby crying in the background. Also, Brandon, who runs Bluebird, agreed to sponsor a new show. Matt Payne and I decided to call it the Greener Grass Podcast, and we already have eight episodes out. On there, I'll be interviewing a lot of people around the cannabis world, along with other green topics. We also want to cover psychedelics on that show, so sometimes we'll cross-post favorite interviews here on The Salon, such as today's talk with Julian. If you want to hear more about cannabis, feel free to follow along and listen to the Greener Grass podcast. Here on The Salon, I'll continue to try and showcase a wide array of voices and topics around the psychedelic community. However, with a wee babe at home, I won't be able to promise an episode every Thursday anymore, so that's why I'm delighted that my buddies Kat and Alexa are now rambling around, gathering material, and making episodes. The Lakey sisters helped me get started with the Psychedelic History Project back in Bruce Damer's barn in California, and so it's great that they started their run on the Salon 2.0 with psychedelic tales from their parents. For me... I'll be more stationary here in Denver, Boulder area of Colorado, and interviewing a lot of people remotely. But if any of my old buddies come through this neck of the woods, come on by to say hi, and maybe we can get you in front of the microphone. Also, if anyone listening around the world wants to report on how the psychedelic revolution unfolded, or is unfolding, in their country, I'd love to hear from fellow travelers all over. Also, there's still some of the psychedelic story sessions from the Blue Dot Tour that I'll be scattering through the next episodes. And hopefully by the time they end, we'll have a couple more live events around the country if that works out. So there's the plan. Feel free to contact me at pelgra at gmail.com with questions, concerns, praise, complaints, baby advice, and your psychedelic experiences, especially the odd ones. Speaking of odd stories and independent thinking, I'm delighted to share this interview of Julian Vane. Most recently, he is the author of Getting Higher, The Manual Psychedelic Ceremony. It's published by the Psychedelic Press UK, and if you don't know them, follow them online and subscribe to get their beautifully crafted journal. It is worthy reading for any psychonaut. As for Julian, he also works with the Psychedelic Museum that's been popping up around Europe. However, Julian came to magic before he came to psychedelics. He was initiated early into the Wiccan tradition. He's a member of the Knot lineage and is a master mason. Today, he shares about the history of magic and drugs, as well as his thoughts on creating psychedelic ceremonies. One last thing. My books are now online for free. Thanks to all the kind souls who bought a hard copy and to those brave few who actually finished them. You are now in the no-nonsense club for life. I'm working on the third book now, but with a new baby, it may be a while before I finish my next cannabis graphic novel. But she's already shaping up nicely. So there's the no-nonsense news. Now on with the show. I'm very happy to be joined here by Julian Vane. Thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you very much, Lex. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. It's most appreciated.
1: How would you define a cult for a modern audience?
2: Okay, so... uh... I often describe myself as an occultist, so someone interested in the occult. The occult is literally anything that's hidden, anything that's mysterious. So from a pragmatic point of view, that's the bit of the library that you go into that has all those books about the paranormal and magic. And it kind of shades off into psychology on one end and on the other end into computing if you use the duodecimal system. So you have this kind of like confluence of these ideas, which are all about the mysterious, the limits of human perception, parapsychological phenomena, um, strange spirit phenomena, whether understood through the lens of ufology or traditional shamanism. It's the weird stuff
1: that the occult is all about. And how did you first get interested in the weird stuff?
2: Uh, I have no idea in the sense that I've always been interested in it. So from being like a really little kid, I would go to that section in the library where all those weird books were. And uh, I would read them. So I was familiar with the work of um, people like Alistair Crowley. By the time I was 10, and I I kind of read around a lot of, I mean, it sounds crazy, but it's completely true. And I read around a lot of the kind of classic texts like the kind of, you know, the great of Solomon and some of, you know, Crowley's writing, the writing of of various of the sort of um, early kind of Wiccan practitioners like Gerald Gardner and so on. Uh, Right from when I was a kid, I've just always been interested in the weird stuff. That's just me.
1: And so how did you take your first practical steps when it started to become a, a path and not just a reading obsession?
2: Okay, so this is back in the uh, Britain in the uh, sort of early 1980s, and this is uh, remarkably before the Internet. Uh, So what I had to do was I had to kind of go to events. I had to go to uh, kind of psychic festivals, so fairs where people would be reading tarot cards and trying to sell incense. And, you know, this kind of New Age kind of stuff. But this is before the term New Age had even really kind of kicked in in a big way in culture. So I would turn up at these places and I would be looking for the witches. I would be looking for the weird bit of the weird thing that I was already in. And, uh, fairly early on, I managed to make contact with, uh, with Wicca, which seemed to be the style of magic that both spoke to me in terms of a kind of, um, uh, a, a sort of a, a mysterious dark liminal feminine occult vibe that i wanted and also would allow practice within a group and i'm a very kind of social person i like working group settings so i got involved in wicca because that was the the means of entry where i actually met people and did stuff um and so that was where the whole kind of narrative began and that was age about uh, about sixteen. I, I became involved with the first uh, a first coven in uh, in North London.
1: And what did a coven look like in North London in the eighties?
2: Okay, so it looked like um, uh, a group of people who I guess one would class as um, uh, working class bohemians or uh, lower middle class bohemians. Would the kind of intersect? Um, and they were people who were really interested in in magic. They were interested in – they came from a variety of different traditions and styles, but it, it consisted of a kind of Alexandrian-style wicker. Uh, although the group that I was involved with, very, very early on, we started experimenting with our ritual system. So we didn't use a kind of standard Book of Shadows thing. We didn't use the off-the-peg initiations. We built each one of our rituals, which were still based around the seasonal cycle, but we built each one uh, individually and we use lots of um uh i guess what we call possession states so what in the craft is called uh, uh invocation of of god forms so you would bring this force this um uh possession state through a person well often they would just kind of channel you know poetry or music or whatever something would, would come from that a kind of an oracular process a very trance based process didn't involve psychedelics didn't involve anything in terms of changing consciousness beyond the ritual drama and, you know, a bit of chanting and a bit of wine. That was basically it. But but that kind of eclectic approach to magic, which I encountered very early on, really sat well with me. So that now the style of work that I do is, is still very much like that. It's very kind of, you know, it has basic building blocks, but otherwise it's actually quite free form rather than being a particular style, particular kind of tradition.
1: And you mentioned uh, about the no drugs because it seems like often people interested in more traditional forms of magic, the drugs don't interest them as much or they're seen as maybe a lesser way to get there. Kind of like the Buddhists see it as well, both forgetting their roots and this is how the, them, they started oftentimes. Yeah,
2: man. It, it's really, really interesting. It's a really interesting thing. I, I was um, uh, The weekend just gone, I was hanging out in um, Boss Castle in Cornwall at the Friends of the Boscastle Museum of Witchcraft AGM. And Maxine Sanders was there of Alex and Maxine and the Alexandrian tradition, one of the 1960s, 1970s, early emergent forms of Wicca. And I was talking to her about this and asked her a question. How come, you know, what, what was the relationship between psychedelic culture of the 60s and this kind of magic stuff that was going on, this Wiccan stuff. And she said that but they, although there was a, a relationship that they're both kind of countercultural things, they occupied very different spaces. So, for example, if you look at the story of witchcraft, of, of, the, of what we've described these days as Wicca, that emerged in the mainstream press. It didn't emerge within uh, Oz and IT and the uh, the underground press. It wasn't in there. It wasn't a feature of that. And so they were just two parallel kind of processes. Later on in the story, what happens is that paganism, modern neo-paganism, wants to become an acceptable belief system. Totally reasonable thing to want to do. You know, no one likes having bricks through their window. Uh, But in doing so, what it also did was it it had to um, perhaps unconsciously uh, distance itself from the more kind of ecstatic Uh, forms of paganism and so those have only really made a re-emergence within the occult story of the Western world through shamanism through the way that shamanism has begun to kind of emerge and re-emerge and then be rediscovered in those traditions so that's kind of how the thing works so there is this kind of sense in which a lot of the uh, Golden Dawn style, Wicca style masonic style emerging forms of paganism separated themselves from the psychedelic gnosis for all kinds of reasons, just luck of the draw to some extent. And it's only now that those two things are coming back down together again, I would say. Wow,
1: that's fascinating about the the parallel tracks. And so to the roots of Wiccan, what's the, the, the feeling in the Wiccan community around this kind of idea that the drug people have that Wiccan started because uh which is we're putting hensbane and datura onto broomsticks and then broomsticks were applied to mucous membranes and that's how people were getting high how do they feel about this wow
2: okay so so there's there's a whole bunch of stuff we can unpack the whole thing about witchcraft which is a tremendously fascinating thing to 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 go and explore you know if people want to kind of look at it there's a um there's a book about the witch by professor ronald hutton who uh which has just come out and recommend going and having a look at that look at his other work about witchcraft too um so uh how do they feel about it I mean, there's there's so many interesting things to unpack from that. One of the things is that a lot of the plants that we have access to in Western Europe, um, with the exception of things like psychedelic uh, you know, liberty caps and psilocybin mushrooms, uh, many of those plants are very very highly toxic. You know, they're delirians, uh, datura and henbane and so on. Go and read the the, the vaults about them. Look at all the train wrecks. There are many. So there's a sense in which, from a European point of view, because of this bizarre way that we don't go anywhere near mushrooms, which obviously Gordon Wasson and and, uh, Valentina Wasson uh, noticed very strongly, we're kind of cut off from this. So although witchcraft and wicker in some respects is a cult of ecstasy, the plants that can give us ecstasy and the chemicals that can give us ecstasy uh, are less a feature of northwest european kind of folklore and tradition except to say these things are really dangerous don't go near them so it's a really different kind of landscape in terms of the way that say witchcraft and magic exist within the americas or indeed some of the other areas that haven't been researched as well like africa and 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 so on um In terms of the way that Wiccans see this, you know, everyday average, you know, your average witch has probably these guys got a very sort of pragmatic view about the value of these substances. Within the standard witchcraft uh, manual, the Book of Shadows, there's a bit where it talks about the eight paths to the center, which is kind of like this way of, you know, there's eight different approaches to alter states of consciousness. One of the paths that's given, I think is number four, uh, is drugs. And in the Book of Shadows, right, in Gerald Gardner's stuff, it says, but of course, don't take too much of them because that will be really bad, which, of course, is true. Too much of anything is bad. That's why we use the term too much. But it's played down within that tradition. I think these days it's like, yeah, you know, it's emerging as part of magic. It's emerging as part of that uh, revived forms of pagan culture. So um, I haven't, certainly haven't got a problem with it, <laughs> speaking as a witch.
1: And um, of the other paths... Um. What are some of the ones that practicing them combines really well with the psychedelic path as well?
2: Well, other other ways of changing consciousness, or other things. Yeah, we... from,
1: the, from the book of shadows, the, the of the other uh, seven paths.
2: Hey, okay, it depends what you're using. Okay, so one of the one of the one of the things from the book of shadows, one of the the paths to power is uh, that of restriction. So using in in witchcraft, there are various forms of using things like cords to restrict you to kind of to give you this. Um, to kind of shut down the senses yeah so it's the kind of thing that if you read descriptions of uh the the little information we have about the druids about the way that they induce trance which was to wrap someone in a bull's hide and put a stone on their chest and that that's what they would go into a trance state so for example if you're working with ketamine which is a substance that takes you into a trance state, then you might, for example, want to have a ritual that involved being wrapped up or tied up or constrained in some way to kind of go deep into that experience. Whereas another way of the paths to power, of course, is to do dancing. And as everybody knows, there's nothing quite as wonderful in the world as dancing on MDMA. You know, that this, everyone, yeah, exactly. It's simply true. So, some substances work with different, uh, you know, uh, different other styles of, of changing or altering consciousness. Depends on what the substance is that you're working with.
1: How did psychedelics start creeping into your own path after you had all this other training in various traditions?
2: Okay, so um, if anyone wants to go and read the, the, the most recent edition of uh, Psychedelic Press, so the Psychedelic Press Journal... Uh, which is um, published here in Britain, that I've written about my first ever trip. So basically, I, I'd done lots and lots of ritual practice. Uh, I'd done kind of yoga and meditation for about 10 years, and I'd done ritual group ritual practice for about five years. Then I had some LSD. Um, I m- massively miscalculated the dose and ended up with quite a strong experience from that. Um, and I was very fortunate because I kind of felt that uh, the – All the sort of preparatory stuff that I'd done in in the form of those other forms of practice kind of helped me navigate through that experience. It wasn't until perhaps even as much as another 10 years before I really started bringing these two things together. And that's partly because um, I was starting to encounter styles of magic uh, and um, which... um, were very much kind of engaged with uh, using psychedelics as a way of changing consciousness. So rather than just having a ritual where you might sort of you know add a small amount of a consciousness-changing agent, incense, for example, or, or wine, or even a small amount of cannabis or whatever, but actually constructing the ritual around the experience of a particular medicine, that's something I only became interested in really over the, only over the course of the last, I don't know, 15 20 years something like this so i'd done quite a lot of practice before kind of really getting into that territory bringing those two things together
1: and do you see that as a pitfall for for others if they don't do enough of another practice before they dive into psychedelics
2: no man that's just my story i've got no prescription for anyone else you know that's their journey i would suggest that for me i found it useful because as i said when i took lsd for the first time i took um a um uh a much larger dose than i than i than i thought uh so i thought that this you know i did i made the classic rookie error of thinking this thing that i had in my hand was one when in fact it was actually four and so the other one i had in my other hand which i thought was one which was also four so by the time i'd taken a half and then a half and then another one thinking none of it was any good i'd taken quite a lot so i was very pleased for me, in that experience, to be able to kind of go, oh, well, I know how to do meditation and breathing through this mentalness, and it was great. Equally, there are other stories. There are other ways of doing it. I would suggest to anyone who does any kind of psychedelic or other practice, whether it's psychedelic in the sense of using drugs or whether or not they're using other, other ways of exploring consciousness, having a baseline practice of doing a little bit of physical stuff so like yoga, running, whatever, just being in your body in some way and having a bit of uh, non-stylized meditation. So like something really, really simple like just sitting down, listening to your breathing, thoughts come up, notice thoughts come up, smile, huh, that's thoughts, isn't it? Go back to your breathing, rinse and repeat 20 minutes a day. Something like that I think is I, – I, I would go as far as recommending that as a um, – you know, a kind of a baseline pair of practices, something for the body, you know, generally keeping look, looking after the body and looking after the kind of the, the, uh, the non-psychedelic mind, just the attentive mind of the moment. That's probably a good place to start. Everything else is up for grabs. It just depends on how the story unfolds, you know?
1: And what you said earlier reminded me of a line from your book, the intelligent psychonaut does not confuse quality with quantity.
2: Yeah, man, this is, this is to do with my, like, I do this rant now, basically, um, about how the heroic dose, yeah? Terence McKenna, peace be upon him. Um, uh, that was one of the things that, that he was, he was uh, an advocate of. There are other people, like, you know, this uh, amazing guy, Kalindi, is another advocate for this sort of stuff. But neither of them, uh, I think, would say that that makes you better, than anybody else, certainly. I know you know it's not. It's not about that. If I tell you that I took a heroic dose of whiskey, hey man, I took this heroic dose of whiskey. I drank the whole bottle, man, and I was just. I vomited all over myself, and I don't remember. And then I think I. I know maybe it found my mother or something. You know, so what? So what? Have you really got something better out of that? We all know that. Uh, a low dose of something, take in a, um, you know, you want to go to a museum, you want to go to a park, you want to go to a party and interact with people. You probably don't want a heroic dose. Ain't no point. There's no point going to a gallery and enjoying and interacting with the art in a psychedelic way, which is an amazing thing to be able to do on a heroic dose. It's just, you know, that's why you have a silent darkness because there's no point having anything else. You know, sometimes, of course, that's a valuable experience. But there are many valuable experiences, including microdosing and including abstinence. Uh, you know, it's about intelligent dosing, not heroic dosing.
1: Intelligent dosing. That's excellent. Um, how would you recommend approaching set and setting? It seems like that's a big part of what your book is about.
2: I guess just being aware of the fact of it. You know these these substances are tremendously plastic. So whatever uh, is going on uh, in the brain that goes into that experience, and in the environment in which that brain lives, is going to hugely influence the way that these substances are. And um, you can you can actively utilize that. And you can also be aware of that in terms of any difficulties that might arise and how you can control the experience actually once you 're familiar with it, man, everyone makes mistakes, and everyone you know has problems. but there is a degree of competence that comes with learning that uh, th- those facts. And whether you choose to describe that or or, or, or create that in terms of, like, elaborate ritual practice or whether or not you have just a personal practice, whatever it looks like, realizing that you have um, the opportunity to kind of make – It's like making an offering to the medicine. It's like saying, "Okay, I've got this stuff. Yeah, this stuff is going to change my consciousness. Fantastic. That's an amazing opportunity. So I'm going to try and set up a really good environment for that, you know, within the limits of what seems reasonable and possible. I want to I want to optimize this. And even if that just means I'm going to keep this till Christmas or I'm going to use this when Joe comes around because he would really appreciate this. Yeah. Being really aware of how those things are used, you know? Um, and, and, and that's, that's, that for me, I think is, the, is one of the kind of the essential points of, of um, set and setting is being just aware of our agency with the psychedelic experience and how we can uh, be active co-creators of whatever unfolds for ourselves and those around us by understanding those variables
1: and for those who would be intrigued by this uh different take that you're taking um what would be the types of psychedelic ceremonies that would be something that somebody could start off as you know trying to do something a little bit differently than they've done before
2: Really easy. Give you an example. So uh, in Britain, every weekend we take about half a million pills of MDMA, half a million doses of MDMA. Probably that that estimate uh, may it may be as many as seven hundred and fifty thousand doses. So fi- so five five hundred thousand doses, half a million doses. So that's what like twenty six million doses a year, something like this. So that's a lot of MDMA. Now, what I would suggest with those people who are taking MDMA, they're having a fantastic time. The vast majority are having a brilliant, brilliant time, which is great. And I think you can actually get higher because I think that what you can do is you can utilize the fact that this is MDMA. This is the – I like to think of it as the daughter of mescaline, the daughter of Grandfather Peyote. Yeah, that's MDMA. That's Molly. That's who she is. So she's a special, special, miraculous material, which we know can heal veterans who've been to war – of the the hurt within them, that our whole culture, let alone the war itself, has inflicted on these individuals that can heal people with abuse and trauma, that can help people open up and love each other and can help people dance in unity. That's an amazing thing. So -hmm. if we're going to take these um, half a million doses every weekend, all I would suggest is wouldn't it be great if just before you take the stuff, let's imagine you're going to take it before you go into the club, before you walk outside, So you all just take hands for a moment, you and the gang, you and your friends, yeah? Just hold hands. Just take a couple of breaths together. Recognize how beautiful and amazing this experience is. Thank the medicine. Thank the medicine, the people who brought the medicine to you. Thank all the people who um, have discovered this medicine and who are using this medicine well this weekend. Put a little blessing into that medicine, maybe a little intention if you've got one. Go and take the medicine. Have a fantastic night. When you come back at the end of the night, before you will go and crash out and go your separate ways, do the same thing. Just hold hands, check in with each other a moment. Take that special time just to recognize that this is sacred. Yeah? It doesn't have to be a big deal. No one has to have a funny hat on. Just do that. Just do that. Start there. You know, Your opportunity is next weekend, like for half a million people. You know, and this is about like reclaiming spirit, our spirituality, and reclaiming the psychedelic gnosis, the 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 psychedelic power that drove probably uh, the um, the mysteries at Eleusis, the psychedelic power that bonds together many many cultures who have not managed to rip the planet apart. We must do this. It would help us. So we've already got the medicine. All we need to do is, all we've got the substance is just to transform that into the medicine. In the way that when the native native people speak about the medicine, because the medicine is the ritual, the
1: set and the setting and the substance. So yeah, just do that with Molly next time you meet her. And what, what's it like for you as you go out doing your performances and your readings um, to share a message like this? What kind of response do you get? And is there any kind of negative pushback to? the approach you're taking?
2: So far, so good. No, not that I've noticed Um, because uh, okay, so with Getting Higher, I've been really, really pleased, really honoured in fact to have lots of people come back to me and say that it's been I don't know, just really interesting really inspiring, they've really enjoyed reading it. Um, it, I've been very very fortunate to work with um, uh, Pete Loveday, who's done the illustrations for it and the cover, which I, you know uh, I mean the, the writing is good but the pictures are brilliant um, so uh, it's been a beautiful thing to produce uh, you know, working with psychedelic press um, people have responded really really well you know I'm fortunate to have because I like doing group practice I've got friends in lots and lots of different uh, traditions so people who have who are members of, of cultures who, who have entheogenic traditions genuinely going back thousands of years and all of those people have been really supportive. They've they've um, helped with um, discussions around the book. And I think that that attempt at being kind of inclusive and authoritative, but not authoritarian, has been really warmly received by people. I don't have all the answers. I'm just a guy. You know, I don't, I'm nothing special. I have, I've written this book to Partly to help other people, partly to distill my own ideas, partly to honor those practitioners who've shared their ideas with me. It's just a serving – a set of serving suggestions for what you could do with your drugs. That's all it really is, you know. But people seem to like it, so that's kind of nice. That
1: would be nice. Um, and how did the book come about for you? When did the first Inklings come?
2: Oh man, I've been thinking about it for years because it just seemed one of the obvious things to do. Um, Like I say, I I had a youthful misadventure with LSD, which although this book—I mean, it it actually maybe it would have helped because it has got a big thing at the beginning saying, "Know your dose, know how much you're taking," and stuff. Um, It was—it was because of the kind of tradition, the style of magic that I'm involved with. So the magical style that I'm most closely. I guess uh, associated with these days is a thing called chaos magic. And um, the thing about chaos magic is it's an approach which is very much about technique. So yes, you can have a complex um, cosmology, you can have a, a very, very complex worldview with all sorts of special symbols and layers and diagrams and all kinds of lovely stuff. That's brilliant. But the question I always kind of want to ask is, yeah, okay, so what do you actually do? What does the practice look like of your, you know, the process that you're telling me about? Um. And so chaos magic is very much about the idea of within all the different spiritual traditions, you can find underlying structures that everyone uses. So people use sound and voice and rhythm and ritual poetry and certain types of movement. And because we're humans actually underneath the cultural wrapper, it all looks much the same, really. So the way that we, um, we have ceremony in all different guises, uh, when you when you tease out the elements, you know there 's the creation of perimeters, the movement of objects across perimeters, the uh, all kinds of relationships that are set up so with getting higher, what I wanted to do is I wanted to do the same kind of idea, the chaos magic approach, I wanted to drill down and say well what's, what are the underlying ideas under these different uh, psychedelic rituals, and what are the kinds of you know the, the practices that people can actually do. So that's why I've called it a manual. So it's designed for people to, to, to give them techniques to, to experiment with. Uh, so this is not answers to things. These are kind of questions as much as anything else. They're opportunities to explore and to play with the psychedelic state. It's nothing to do with me or anyone else uh, coming up with any answers about what it means. So they're ways of engaging with it. And that's what I wanted to share with people.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it sounds like a very non-dogmatic approach, and it I think it, it would make sense. The chaos magicians are more into the drug side of thing as one more useful tool in, in the arsenal.
2: Yes, in a word, yes. Um, I mean, it has to be said, uh, not all chaos magicians use drugs, of course, and that is, in fact, true. But um, if you look at the history of chaos magic, because it arose in the... Uh, Britain essentially in the kind of late 1970s, 1980s, um, it was very heavily influenced by punk, it was very, very strongly influenced by the kind of, by, by LSD, and, uh, and, and it was certainly a style of magic which attempted to, Really look at kind of two two interesting sort of ideas. One, which was the idea of um, the paradigm, the idea of belief, the idea that we have this kind of a set of symbolic a um, uh, symbolic envelope in which we place ourselves. So whether or not we call that. Um, you know, whatever the practice might be, it might be a, a, an envelope that looks like Hinduism or looks like NLP or looks like performance art or looks like Discordianism or looks like whatever the belief system. And then you also have gnosis. So, this idea of changing consciousness, the same thing that the eight paths to power in witchcraft talk about, but you know, what other ways of doing it? And people, by that point in history, fortunately, in, even in magic, had managed to get hip to the idea that drugs might actually be the answer. Um, so they started experimenting with them and the rest, as they say, is history.
1: And so, and speaking of history, that's the point I wanted to get to, um, is drugs and magic. And also your work with the psychedelic museum, if you want to talk a little bit about that and, and how the psychedelic museum came about.
2: Okay. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm involved with, uh, a lot of my professional work is to do with sort of museums and heritage sites and so on. It's, it's, it's an area that really interests me. And I think that, um, like they say, if you don't know your history, then you don't know where you're coming from. And I think that one of the interesting things about the psychedelic uh, renaissance that we're in now, the third summer of love, it's also been called, is that that, that pulls to into into mind these, these um, uh, first two sort of iterations of summers of love and the whole history of this thing. The, it, it, I'm also really interested in um, pro, uh, prohibition and finding ways to... Uh, to change the the circumstances in which we find ourselves, and in order to understand prohibition, uh, you, I think it's really, really essential to understand the history of you know what was going on, particularly in in, in um, the US uh, over the, that period of you know uh, Nixon being in power and so on. Really, really important to understand those things, and also there's a lot of fun to be had because there's now from the first psychedelic revolution there's loads and loads and loads of art and culture and of course this this continuous rediscovery of the kind of um, um, indigenous non-european cultures as well so we have all this stuff what do we do when we have a big load of stuff that we find valuable and interesting but basically no one's got a house room for Well, what we do is we put it into a museum and, um, I would like to see whether or not I'm involved with it. There are lots of, there's lots of people. There's, there's about five of us involved in this kind of project at the moment. There's a psychedelic museum in, in Paris, which is very much focused around kind of the art side of things. It, this is an idea whose time has nearly, nearly, nearly come. So, however it emerges, I would like to see a museum. We, uh, which is a, a collection where we can put some of this art and some of this culture and we can also begin to have that as a place for um, you know, for archive, for research, for, for that sort of um, uh, culture. Whether that happens as part of a university, it happens as a result of some kind of rich person dying and bequeathing a vast fortune to uh, me or my, and my friends, for example, that would equally be cool. Um, but I'd like to see a psychedelic museum. We've run a a series of pop-up museums in Britain um, where we've done a couple couple of different shows. We did one which was focused around Alice and underground culture, and um, that happened in London. There was was some lectures and things that sat around the exhibition. Um, We've done one at Breaking Convention, which is the big psychedelics conference that happens at Greenwich, um, also in London. We'd like to do others. We've got... um, uh, one of our directors in, is in uh, uh, in North America. So he's been kind of working over there on the project. As I mentioned, there's a kind of sister organization to the one that I'm directly involved with in Paris. So it's an idea that's kind of bubbling up because to understand where we are and to have a, an opportunity to create visions of the future and to be able to celebrate the story thus far for us as Europeans and broader than that for the whole of our species our engagement with psychedelic drugs i'd love to see temporally autonomous or permanent spaces where those exhibitions and those ideas could be shared and, and, and explored that's what i'd like to happen um
1: and so if you did get your millions from some listener out there and you were put in charge of curating the history section. What would you be most interested in bringing up about psychedelics in history and magic?
2: Wow. I don't know. I mean, there's a, there are so many things, aren't there? I mean, I guess one of the big things for me about psychedelics generally uh, in terms of understanding their history is understanding how um, – the psychedelic state, so the states of awareness that we're beginning to really understand from the um, fMRI work, the recent fMRI work, for example, these states of awareness which are involve a down-regulation of the narrative self and the emergence of all these interesting novel connections within a mind that is still aware, but aware in a very different way than we are when we're uh, in our, our sort of default mode way of consciousness – From the very moment we can stand, we stand up and then we turn round and 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 and we sit down. Because one of the things we learn as humans is that we can control our own state of mind and our own awareness. And we can do this in a variety of different ways. And then we learn things like we can do holotropic breath work and we can do it like that. We can lose ourselves in dancing. And then, of course, we discover that there are substances out there. There are special types of food that we can eat that make our consciousness change as well. And I would guess that one of the things I would want to bring up in an exhibition like that was how other creatures than humans engage in the psychedelic experience. So there are there are plenty of examples of other animals that that, that take various substances. I was reading recently about um, uh, uh, some film of dolphins playing with a puffer fish you know, essentially getting stoned off the pufferfish. So I would want to bring out the fact that this is simply this is a this is a, a behaviour of biology, and that that brings up all sorts of interesting questions. Um, so I want to normalise the psychedelic experience in that sense as just a thing that living things do, not even humans do, living things do. And then, of course, we can ask a question: Well, what does that mean, and what can that? What does that? Uh, uh, What do those states allow us to have access to that may be beneficial or useful or indeed problematic? Because the thing about the psychedelic state is that from the fMRI work, um, we now know that this is... There are gradations of it, but it's a very different state of awareness. It's a state of awareness that has all of these magical possibilities within it. So the level of placebo effect healing that you can have, the the fact that you can figure out problems. And we know now from the LSD research at Imperial last year that objective problem solving is possible on 75 micrograms of LSD, that's what you need. So we know that this other state of awareness, the state of awareness that we go into when we down-regulate the narrative self, it can do all kinds of stuff. And it may be that it's important for our own psychic health, the psychic health of us as a species. Um, it may be that it has these, quotes, magical abilities. It certainly seems to have a healing ability on individuals. Which is sometimes quite profound. So, I would want to say this is a normal state of awareness that all biology appears to seek out to some extent, certainly all complex biology. It will find ways of getting high. Secondly, that getting high is a particular set of um, states of awareness. The limits of which we do not yet know, but which are nevertheless certainly capable of particular things, some of which are undoubtedly beneficial to us. That's the kind of baseline message I want to get. I'd like to have loads of kind of weird stuff in there kind of pointing at that, but that's basically what I'd be saying.
1: And so from all of these different uh, shamanistic paths that you've seen around the world, uh, did any of them really – uh, ring true to you as something that, that helped as you were devising psychedelic ceremonies and, and ceremonies in general?
2: <clears throat> oh, man, all of it. I mean, you know, there's, 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 there's generally, in my experience, there's generally something useful to be learned from, you know, many, many different settings. So I've been really, really um, honored to participate in, in ceremony with, um, uh, so with, uh, the people usually refer to as the as the, uh, the people so um, and with um, various kind of like uh, north american and, and mexican shaman and um, they they 've all been really really helpful people you know they 've all been i've uh, uh, um, the inter- interactions i 've had with people at like the santa Dami church the interactions i 've had with various kind of organizations um i've been very fortunate i've encountered many many really good teachers so again my style is very very collaborative it's what i like doing if you yeah i've written i think getting high is like my 11th book or something but if you look back at them most of them are co-authored or many of them are co-authored i think it's most of them actually are co-authored because i like working with other people and so i've been able i hope uh in a in a, uh, a thoughtful and respectful way to be able to draw on those indigenous traditions that I've been fortunate to to um, to interact with and to to uh, learn from them. Yeah, to learn from many of them, all of them.
1: And for people out there listening who are curious about this and would like to perhaps start exploring this more, would there be? Certain directions you would recommend at the at this nexus between psychedelics and shamanism and and magic
2: I guess the there are there are several things that you could try doing, so one of them is just this process of um, being thoughtful about the use of the medicine, so bringing that kind of intention into the way that you take your drugs. the next one I guess would be to to think about um, the idea of uh, how you might use desire or intention in that space. Because the psychedelic state allows us to enter this other form of awareness, the limits of which we are, we are not quite certain of yet, uh, if you have particular goals, particular desires, you might be able, to be able to frame those in an intelligent and thoughtful way and bring those into the experience in some way. You may also want to then do... Uh, things in the experience which are to do with kind of actively listening to to what you 're being told, so for example, you might want to experiment with um, anything from a kind of artistic practice through to i don 't know um, uh, reading reading um the future in the uh, dividing patterns in clouds or in the um uh, in tarot cards or whatever you might want to have a practice which is about kind of reflecting on your own thoughts about where you are now where you have been where you may be in the future so it's about just utilizing that space so it's about making it sacred noticing how important and valuable it is it's about thinking about how you can bring your desire intelligently into that space so you're actively using it like a magician you're using that opportunity to make uh you know however you want to frame this to um try and Uh, assist with your own unfolding and therefore the unfolding of all those all those beings in the world so it should be good for you it should be good for everyone around you it should be about like empowering yourself and in order to do that successfully that's like that you know fourth turn of the wheel stuff it has to be for everyone else as well and then it's about listening 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 because as well as going into the space with desire it's also important to be able to listen 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 what is the stuff that's coming up from the unconscious what are your thoughts and fears and feelings how can you process those how can you externalize those into something and dialogue with them You know, one of the things about, for example, ayahuasca, which was really helpful for people, is because of the way it works on our nervous system, it fantastically conjures spirits for us, even those of us who don't believe in that nonsense. And so that allows us to have our problem in front of us with a face and to dialogue with it, or to have something that gives us a personality that tells us something. And part of the psychedelic state is about that. It's about, as well as going in and Using it for problem solving, it using it for healing, using it for you know utilitarian stuff is also about kind of listening. What's going to come up in it? You know, making sure that you're doing both of those sides of it really. So make the space sacred. Use your desire and listen to what the medicine tells you.
1: Mm, thank you for that one. That's I think it's a really easy one for me to forget. uh, is the listening part. It's so easy to be there and and keep running with your own dialogue and forget that you, know, you can. Just slow it down and take it in,
2: yeah, 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 I'm rubbish at that as well. I have to spend ages trying to do that shit it's really tricky for um, me
1: that's, yeah. and a question that I just have to ask um for the tarot um are there any decks that are particularly or decks that are particularly close to your heart out of curiosity
2: yeah 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 there's a, there's a couple that I really like I mean I like the one um uh the Fried Harris, Alistair Crowley deck, the Thoth Tarot deck. You know, I quite like that kind of, you know, as a, as a, as a young man, I was very into that sort of, um, philemic style of magic and Crowley and all that kind of thing. So that, that I really, really enjoy. Um, I also like, so there's a deck called the, um, usually referred to as the rider Waite deck, which is more, I think, more properly described as the Coleman Smith deck because it was Pamela Coleman Smith who did the artwork and Ryder was just the publisher. At Waite wrote the book she is the artist, let's honour her. So the Coleman Smith deck, the so-called Ride Away, that classic deck, you know, you can't really go wrong. Can you really? You know, it's like, uh, it's the the absolute standard. Then there's, you know, occasionally I come across kind of, you know, various crazy wild ones and just enjoy doing those, using those. There was one that was created by a Facebook group, a Chaos Magic Facebook group, um, uh, which is called the Chaos Magic Group Tarot. And uh, it was a collective work, so I think about 40 of us submitted images that became a became a deck. I've got, I've got a copy of it here, in fact. There we go. So there it is. Um, so I don't I don't think you can actually buy this now, but we kind of created this with uh, and each each of the cards are by are by different artists. So they're all kind of. There's a couple in here by 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 me and. Um, by my partner, Nikki as well. So that's a really nice thing and quite fun to use. So, yeah, those are my favorites. Yeah, it
1: fun. Um, yeah, the Tarot and drugs make sense to me.
2: Well, you've got to cut stuff up with haven't <laughs> you, really? And you need a cut... Is
1: that, that's not profane? Is anything profane, actually? That might be a good...
2: And, what is it they say? To the pure? All things are pure? I don't know. I mean... I don't know. Don't ask me. I have no idea. <laughs>
1: the soul of sweet delight can never be defiled. Says <laughs> Blake. Um... Well, one good cra- uh, question to ask a researcher like you, um, for the books that were really influential for you at different stages on your journey, which, which ones come to mind as books that really helped you figure out this getting higher in psychedelic ceremonies?
2: Um... The classic Plants of the Gods, I think, was one of those ones that I remember kind of encountering and thinking this is amazing. I remember reading uh, Terence McKenna's Food of the Gods and thinking this is a fantastic narrative. You know, it's very inspirational and very, very kind of uh, very inspiring um, to text to, to read. Um, uh, what other things? I don't know. P. and T. just from the point of view of like someone who's not a chemist, but who likes kind of obscure kabbalah and bizarre words of power i can look at the back bit which i don't really understand and but for, as a magician it seems to have like magic symbols and then magical words that i can't pronounce and don't look like they're actually meant to be pronounced by a human they're like a kind of you know lovecraftian sort of text so so i like those uh, uh um they're good I don't know. What else? Um, like I say, I was really heavily influenced by by, by um, Crowley's work, which I encountered uh, as quite a, a young man. So um, I really enjoy uh, reading his kind of accounts of sort of drugs and magic. It's, of course, rather disappointing that we don't have his, his book, The Cactus, because Crowley uh, experimented with mescaline and uh there was a a book uh which was probably a collection just a collection of trip reports of uh um his mescaline experiments which unfortunately doesn't exist you know it was it was i think that there's a story about it being taken by customs at one point and a copy has as yet not surfaced um so so that and of course carlos castaneda where would i be without carlos castaneda Where, where would any of us be without carlos castaneda fantastic you know, again, really evocative stuff. I don't. I really don't care if it's true or false. I'm not even sure I understand what those categories mean. But I know that it, for me, it was inspirational. Yeah. So for me, it was like, wow, this other reality. That's so exciting. You can get about drugs. Look, there's a dog pissing on him. It's Mescalito.
1: Fantastic.
2: You know, it's brilliant stuff. What's not to like?
1: All right. What's not to like? And so I guess before I let you go here, uh, would you have any... Final advice you'd like to share with people who are interested in more ceremonial psychedelics?
2: I think just um, realize that uh, psychedelic ceremony is just a natural thing. Ceremony is just a natural process. We shake hands. We toast with our our wine glasses. um, We lay flowers at the tomb of people that we love and that we respect. We 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 just do this naturally. Yeah. So by all means, kind of, you know, read stuff, engage with different practices, but make up your own way, because as a as a human, as a symbol making creature and as communities of humans, uh, as affinity groups of humans, if we want to do a psychedelic ceremony, we can just build it in our own way. Yeah. So there's a lot to be said for kind of, you know, going off to Iquitos and going to Mapia and going to take the ayahuasca with you know, some cool person in the jungle. That's brilliant if you have the opportunity. But if you don't have the opportunity, ain't no problem, yeah? Because if you can get hold of the medicine and you have a little bit of intelligence, you can make this stuff up because guess what? It's all made up. Every single thing that any of these people do is all made up. Everything that I do, I just make up, yeah? And I make it up in a way that I like to think is informed by other practices and my experience, and I hope I do it in a good-hearted way, but I am nevertheless just making it up. So make up your own stuff. Make up your own mind and make up your own way of making the medicine.
1: Julian, uh, we have to leave on that because it's just perfect. Thank you so much. This has been such an enjoyable talk.
2: Oh, man, you're really, really welcome. Thank you very, very much for uh, speaking with me and inviting me onto the show. And, um, yeah, peace. Lovely.